So hello to all of you. I'm Anthony Scaramucci and welcome uh, to our podcast. I hope you guys have been enjoying our podcast. Our goal is to give you a glimpse into the way people succeed, not just the glossy version of the success, but really what it takes to uh, find the greatness inside. It's, of course, it's a lot of hard work and intense focus. Uh, and the road is obviously winding, and I like bringing guests on uh, who I have an enormous amount of respect for, but can also be realistic with us about what it took uh, to get them to where they are. And just to remind everybody, I'm the founder of Skybridge Capital. I'm also the co-host of the iconic show, Wall Street Week. We brought Louis Rukeyser's show back about two years ago, and I host that with Gary Kaminsky. I'm a Fox News and Fox Business contributor, and I'm the, I'm the author of three books, uh, The Little Book of Hedge Funds, Goodbye Gordon Gecko, and my third book, which came out last Monday, which is called Hopping Over the Rabbit Hole, How Entrepreneurs Turn Failure into Success. Uh, it's in bookstores now. You can also buy it on uh, Amazon. How's that for a plug? Uh, now, I want to go right into it uh, with one of the greatest risk takers and perhaps one of the best contrarians that I know in the private equity space. Uh, and I want to talk about a lot of different things with uh, Mr. Ross today, uh, negotiation, life skills, how he got to where he is. Uh, in addition to those things, I would argue that uh, Mr. Ross, and he's known in the industry as one of the best turnaround financiers in the United States. Uh, uh, some people have called him the king of bankruptcy. Uh, that includes restructuring of businesses and then bringing them public again. And he's also an economic advisor to the Trump campaign, uh, something that we share together. We're both on Mr. Trump's Economic Advisory Council. So uh, please welcome uh, to the show the chairman, chief strategy officer uh, for W.L. Ross and Company, uh, and my friend, uh, uh, Wilbur Ross. Wilbur, welcome to the show. Thank you for joining us. Uh, you, you, well, thank had, you, Anthony. Good to be on. Uh, you, you, you've had one of the most interesting careers on Wall Street. Uh, some people have actually called you a 19th century industrialist slash investor. Why do you think people call you that, sir? Well, <clears throat> my wife frequently uh, accuses me of trying to reinvent the 19th century because we invest in very basic things banks, steel companies, par uh, machinery part companies, coal companies, things of that sort. And she's right. We are doing basic industries. But as to the 19th century, I don't agree with the slavery part. <laughs> well, you do have that reputation. But tell our listeners why you've directed your business strategy in that area. Some of the people that listen to our program are millennials that are focused on data and technology. Uh, but give them that contrarian view of why you're back in the 19th century, even though you're not wearing that handlebar mustache. We've had a lot of experience with these basic so-called Rust Belt industries. And so I don't want to deviate from that. It's not that we're anti-high tech. And in fact, often one of the things that's wrong with the old fashioned companies we get into is that they're not paying enough attention to the new technologies. They're not doing enough of substituting capital for labor and gaining productivity improvements. 
So it's just that you can't be all things to all people. We'd rather be a few things uh, that we can do well and kind of beat it to death. Make, make, makes really good sense. I want to I want to go back a little bit in your career, and 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 tell our listeners what prepared you uh, for the business that you're in. Well, it was actually an accident. Uh, the accident was when I first went to work on Wall Street. It was for an early go-go manager uh, called Imri Devay. Um, I had had to do my military service after Harvard Business School. I'd been ROTC. And so, unfortunately, Mr. DeBay died two days before I rejoined his firm. So that meant that on his deathbed, he had sold it to one of their clients, the uh, Winthrop family from Massachusetts. So by the time I actually arrived, I already changed jobs once and I hadn't even gotten a paycheck. Then uh, he very quickly decided that he liked better being a client than running an advisory firm. So he merged it into Wood Struthers and it became Wood Struthers and Winter. Well, that was where the accident occurred. They didn't, Wood Struthers was a much more conservative firm they didn't like the guy who was running our venture capital business. And since I was the youngest and most expendable person, they fired him and gave me the job of liquidating that portfolio. And so over the next few years, I'd learned how to get rid of businesses, learned how to try to fix the ones that were broken, learned how to negotiate with the banks and the vendors and all that. And uh, so that was really the start of it. It was an, an accident of fate uh, that got me into it in the beginning. Where, where, you, you, you also spent some time in the Army, though, too. too. Is that true? Yes. I, I, I had been in ROTC when I was at Yale. In those days, it was universal military training. So the only question was, would you go in as an enlisted man or would you go in as an officer? Well, the truth is I needed the few dollars a month that ROTC paid you while you were in college because that was my spend money. I was what they call a bursary student at Yale, namely I was on student aid. Um, and so I went into the army uh, immediately after Harvard Business School and immediately before going to work, talk, was talk in about, for about eighteen months. Talk about your uh, parents for a second, because you're you're bringing up the student aid. Tell us a little bit about the household that you grew up in. Uh, what was it like growing up? Well, it was a little town in New Jersey called North Bergen, about halfway between the Lincoln Tunnel and the George Washington Bridge. Um, my mother was a third grade school teacher in the public school, which I and my sister and my brother attended. And uh, my father was a local lawyer and eventually a local uh, elected official. Yeah, yeah. Was, so, it, was, was it tough for you going to a school where your mom was a teacher? I mean, did you get hit with a ruler or 
or anything like that? Were they a little rougher on you, Wilbur? Well, that would, for the public school wasn't too too rough. I actually graduated as valedictorian from it, but it was felt that I needed more discipline. <laughs> so I was sent to a Jesuit military school <laughs> in New York called St. Francis Xavier. And it was probably true that I did need more discipline. In fact, my wife would argue it's still true. <laughs> so should I, should I ask your wife if I should bring the Jesuits back into your life, Wilbur? Well, um, the Jesuits were very, very good teachers. I did have a little run-in with them at the end of the day because um, I was headed to Yale, and Yale is obviously not a Catholic school, and they would have far preferred me to go to uh, Georgetown or Holy Cross or Notre Dame or one of those. No, it makes, it um, makes, makes sense. But, the, but the, they, they were very, very good teachers and gave me a very, very good foundation. You, you, you talk about, and I've heard you speak in a number of different settings about the skills needed to turn around a company. And so a lot of this stuff that happened to you in your upbringing, the disciplines that you've learned in the Army and from the Jesuits, uh, because one of the things you have said uh, that it's impossible to turn a company around overnight. So tell our listeners a little bit about the requisite skills uh, to turn something around that is broken. All right. Well, usually a company gets into trouble because a series of mistakes have been made. And usually one of them is too much debt. But usually the more important one uh, is management decisions, either building too big a plant, building too many plants, building them in the wrong place, uh, not directing product lines properly, kind of onesies, twosies. But what happens when the company's been doing poorly for quite a while, senior management tends to develop a loser's mindset. You go to them, you say, well, Joe, what's wrong with your company? And they'll give you a whole litany. Oh, it's the unions. Oh, it's the class action lawyers. Oh, it's the regulations. Oh, it's this. Oh, it's the recession. Oh, it's the some other factor. All the factors they mention are things not within their control. So I'm saying to them, well, what about the things that you can fix? And you usually get kind of a blank stare. So the first thing is, you need a new attitude, need an attitude of really being analytical and saying, well, what is wrong with the business? What needs to be done to fix it? And uh, how do we go about implementing the change? And I've learned over the years that I would rather back a mediocre idea that was brilliantly executed than a brilliant idea that was poorly executed because the poorly executed idea always goes bad. So we focus a lot on execution and what we favor are what I call dirty fingernail managers, not guys sitting in an office building somewhere, but people are out on the factory floor and are intimate with what's going on in the workplace. Yeah. So it's really the, the hands-on management disposed to the cerebral academic stuff. You're, your first, when you started working for Rothschild, uh, tell us about your first big deal. 
it was um, Rothschild had a venture capital arm. And in fact, they had been clients of mine in my former incarnation. Um, and they were investors in Federal Express. In fact, they had gotten to the point where they had $70 million in Federal Express because the break-even point kept going up and up and up and up. So the first project I worked on was trying to keep Citibank from putting Federal Express into bankruptcy because they were fed up with it. We convinced them not to do it. And 12 months later, Federal Express went public because they finally had gotten to the proper level of revenue. And the history of FedEx is quite a glamorous one since then. What, what, what an amazing story that is. And I, and I, I mean, he's one of my idols, Fred Smith. And I often tell people that uh, one, of, one of the best lines on entrepreneurship came from him uh, where I heard him speak at Harvard Business School a few years back, and he said that, you know, if I knew how hard it was to start FedEx, I never would have done it. You know, me- meaning that, you know, you-, you-, you put the business plan down, but once your plan meets contact with the enemy, all kinds of uh, uh, stuff happens that you don't expect. And so it's a- this is just a great story. Now, now I want to shift gears a little bit because you are known, at least in our industry, around Wall Street and in the private equity world, as one of the best and most skilled negotiators so tell us a little bit about that. Uh, what 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 are those skills? How have you uh, have, what have you developed, and what tips could you give uh, uh, people listening in? I think preparation is the single most important thing. Second most important thing is patience. Third most important thing is being realistic. Fourth most important thing: don't bluff. And the fifth and most important thing is keep at it day, night, whatever, until you finally get to a proper resolution. So I think it's a lot, again, as with regular businesses, it's a lot of little onesie twosies. And actually negotiation is how I first met Donald Trump. Carl Icahn and I were the bondholder side of the Trump Taj Mahal bankruptcy. And that's how I first met Trump in any kind of other than social setting. And it's interesting that both Carl and I are supporting him. And that tells you a lot, because when you meet someone in his darkest moment and he handles himself appropriately, which Trump did, then you get a lot of respect for him. And I think that's a big part of the reason why Carl and I are both very active supporters of Trump. So, so if, if if you don't mind, and if you're comfortable doing it, can you go into a little bit of that, and and maybe you could demonstrate uh, or your observation of Mr. Trump's character during that dark moment? Well, uh, he never came to a meeting late. Never came to a meeting unprepared. Never um, used vulgarity or weird off-the-cuff things. Uh, He was thoroughly professional in every single setting. And his knowledge of the business was extremely detailed. I'm a real bookworm, and I get really into details. And most CEOs, especially ones who have lots of other businesses as well as Trump does, 
most many of them are not really into the nitty gritty of the business. He is. He knows how many slot machines uh, are on the floor of each room. He, he knows everything in great detail about the business. And he also has the strategic frame of reference. So uh, it seemed to me that it really wasn't his fault that the casino went bad. There were a lot of external factors. And so while in the beginning we were quite PO'd at him, we ultimately concluded that the casinos were much more valuable with Trump there than they possibly could have been without him there. So it was kind of an indoctrination by fire. It was that was that your most difficult deal? And if it wasn't, Wilbur, what was your most difficult deal and why? Most difficult deal because of the complexity. I was the representative, the financial advisor for the unsecured creditors of Drexel Burnham in their bankruptcy. And that was the a wild scene. We liquidated in the first 30 days of the bankruptcy, $25 billion of various kinds of securities. And to do that without getting horribly picked off by the other traders was a real nightmare challenge. Uh, and then scrambling through the complexities of Drexel Burnham, its various transactions, its capital structure uh, was certainly the most fascinating and in, in many ways the most challenging of the events. And it was also complicated by the fact that the then CEO, Fred Joseph, uh, had been an acquaintance of mine at Harvard Business School. So here we were on extreme opposite sides of the same equation, and yet people who knew each other uh, from a very different context. So that made it very, very uh, challenging. You love this sort of thing, though, right? So what is it about the rebuilding of companies or delving into that sort of complication that you love so much? Well, I like it. We started out being advisors, but um, I decided to become a principal for two reasons. One, I think at the end of the day, you should eat your own cooking. And more importantly, uh, investing in things is a better business than just advising people what they should be doing in the problem. So um, I, li well, I like it. One, it's a very lucrative activity. But more importantly, it's one of the few segments of investing where you really have a chance to do well while you're doing good. And we saved probably 100,000 jobs in the steel industry, and I'm very proud of that. Now, we made a lot of money doing it, but we also did it in a way that was good for the workers, and I have very good relations with, with most unions. Yeah, well, you, 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 you're you bringing that up. You, you get along very well. I mean, that's another big part of your reputation, that you get along very well with, with union leaders. And so explain that relationship uh, because it's counterintuitive. Well, you know, big union leaders normally are very well informed about the businesses that their workers serve. Um, in fact, in many some cases, 
I find the union leader is more knowledgeable about what's really going on than the CEO, and that's often one of the problems. Um, union leaders also are very pragmatic, and if you're straight with them and you negotiate mano a mano and you are trying to be reasonable and realistic, you can usually make an arrangement that's mutually beneficiary. And you have to do that because the companies we're in are labor-intensive activities. You can't have a totally demoralized workforce because it isn't the generals who run the army, it's the sergeants. Well said. Wilbur, thanks for being here. And please subscribe to my podcast, The Anthony Scaramucci Show, on iTunes. And also, please go and rate and review it so we can continue to bring you the content that matters. Also, please share this podcast with your friends and coworkers who you think will enjoy listening to some of these wacky, wild, and insightful stories. Remember to email me at Anthony Scaramucci at podcast at skybridgeinsights.com. Follow us or follow me on Twitter at Scaramucci. And don't forget to watch Wall Street Week on the Fox Business Channel, Friday nights at 8 p.m., Saturday at 9 a.m. and Sunday at 9 a.m. Until next time, have a prosperous week.